Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Let's go ahead and um, we're going to go to Matthew 20, um, but I'm going to back up just one verse because uh, in Matthew 19:30 we need to kind of cover that verse. But before we get there, Matthew 19 and 20 are two chapters that kind of roll together. So to pick up where we left off last week, Jesus is taking his disciples from Galilee <clears throat> down kind of through Israel, crossing over the Jordan, and then heading back over the Jordan again, up through Jericho, up through Bethany, and up to um, Israel. I posted that map on Slack if you um, need kind of a visual reference for where we are. But Jesus is on his final journey with his disciples, heading up to Jerusalem, and it's gonna end in Matthew 21 uh, with the triumphal entry, where he rides in on a donkey and everybody waves the palm branches and proclaims that he's gonna be king, but their perception of what king is is off. Now, on this journey, what Jesus is doing with his disciples is he's re-educating his disciples because these guys grew up in a culture believing specific things about specific issues because that's how they were taught or that's how they grew up or that's what they thought. And they're starting to realize that the way that the kingdom of God does things is very different than the way that the kingdom of the world does things. And in order to truly follow Jesus, you're going to have to let go of some thoughts that you have about some things. Now the wild thing about that is that our thoughts, they're all over the place. I don't know what thoughts you need to let go, but the Holy Spirit does. And he works through scripture, through teaching, to identify the things in our life that have no place in the kingdom of God and need to be surrendered. And this stuff is brought up along the journey that these guys are going along, just like we as disciples are following Jesus on a journey as well. Our life is very similar to this journey where we're following Christ and he's challenging us through moments like this to get re-educated about the way that we think things. Because our belief system needs to be transformed. It's gotta get in line with the word of God. So that's what's happening on this journey. We're trading, the disciples are trading their thoughts for God thoughts, and we're trading our thoughts for God's thoughts. Now last week in Matthew 19, it continues in 20. In 19, we talked about um, all of the lovely things that people love to talk about in church. Uh, We talked about marriage, we talked about sex, we talked about money. All of the things that people love getting re-educated and rethinking about. Uh, And since all of you came back, um, that's exciting. uh, Because uh, it was just, um, I had to say some things that that are not particularly popular uh, these days. uh, And it's exciting to see that people are on board with trading our thoughts for God's thoughts. Because you may not particularly think a lot of the same things that he thinks. And that's okay, because he's not done with you yet. So the way that you think about things like marriage and sex and intimacy and family and children and money, God's gonna challenge all that stuff. Um, And he's not gonna stop, he's gonna continue. Um, And today uh, it gets uh, even uh, more difficult because he moves beyond just family and money and he gets into this realm, almost the entire chapter 20 is about this. It is about our ideas about status. 
Jesus is challenging his disciples to rethink their views on status, and he's doing that to us today in Matthew 20. And I think the easiest way to understand status would probably be to explain it as our standing in the world. Status would be your position in the world. And it can manifest itself in lots of different spheres. You've got education, you've got politics, you've got social, you've got religious, you've got financial. But where you position yourself on the, the, the game of life playing board in relation to other people is our worldly understanding of status. Um, I think it's probably helpful for us to see that status is um, almost like a measuring tool that we use to figure out where we are in relation to other people. Now, some of us, we only care about specific spheres of life. And we are very particular about how we are viewed by others and where we are in relation to other people. I don't have to be the richest person in the world, but I do have to be richer than my neighbor. That's status. I don't have to be the smartest Bible person in the world, but I do have to be seen as smarter on Slack than this person and this person. That's status. You follow? This view of status is what is the current that run, un, runs underneath all the stuff that you see on the top as the manifestation of issues within the church. Ma the majority of issues that you see within the church that are not just stemming from weak leadership, they are stemming from the heart of people to posture and position themselves ahead of other people because what we want more than anything is to be first. But we don't have to be first in front of everybody, I just have to be first in front of Gary, right? I just have to be seen as wiser than Mary. It doesn't matter, you don't have to be the best, but you just have to get in front of this person. It's seen in the dynamic of the disciples, it's seen in the life of the church, it's unhealthy, and Jesus wants you to get re-educated because it's no way to live and it's a shackle, amen? So, <clears throat> he ends 1930 with this idea of the first becoming last because where we want to be first, God says that doesn't fly in my kingdom. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna pick up 1930 and then we're gonna run 20 through 16, uh, chapter 20, verse 16. Um, and the reason why I'm doing this is because this parable in 20 is sandwiched between Jesus saying the same thing in a little bit different way. So let's go up to 19, verse 30. It says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. He went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard to work. And going out about the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, why don't you go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. 
And the guy, he goes out again about the sixth hour, which is around noon, and then again at the ninth hour, around 3 p.m., and he said the same thing to these people that he kept seeing in the marketplace. And then he did it again at the 11th hour, around 6 p.m., close of the business day. We're getting to the the 11th hour is a time, 6 p.m., but it's also like the end of the day. It's the last possible time that would work. He goes out and he found others standing around, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And he said to them, because no one has hired us. And he said, well, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, all right, call in the laborers and pay them their wages. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin with the last up to the first. So the people that I just hired who've only been working an hour, I want you to pay them first. And then the people who've been been working since like 9 a.m., I want you to pay them last. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those who, and those hired first came, they thought they were gonna receive more. Even though they had already agreed upon their working amount, they thought they were gonna get more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, "These, these guys, they worked only an hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now to get into this parable and truly understand it, we've gotta be reminded that Matthew was a Jewish believer, Jewish disciple of Jesus, and his audience for this book are Jewish Christians. First century converts from Judaism to Christianity, And he's talking to them with imagery that they would understand. And this goes all the way back into the prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah about the the, the idea of the Lord's world being a a vineyard and hiring specific people to do things. And there's great, there's all kinds of imagery wrapped up in the Old Testament that Jesus is tapping into and that Matthew is using to help his Jewish audience understand. So for us, it's a little bit lost, but essentially the vineyard in this story is the world. The master is God, and the early workers were the Jews, and the late workers were the Gentiles. So Matthew is communicating to his audience, look, the covenant that God established with you did not mean that that was the only covenant he was ever going to establish. He's gonna be grafting Gentiles in at a later date, but you don't get to inherit something greater, bigger, better than they are just because you came early, because, The entire economy of God is not based on your work, it's based on his generosity. And that is really, really important. The reason why it's important is because it puts an emphasis on God's faithfulness and generosity and not us, and that's good news. Because we like putting the emphasis on us. 
We like arguing our case. We like finding people that we're pretty sure will be like-minded with us, who will get on the same page that we gossip to about some injustice that was done to us so that we can get them on our pay, on, 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 our, on a payroll, our, our, our way of thinking so we can build rapport and have an army of people so that if our integrity is ever called into question, then we've got these people who are on our side. We don't want people telling us the truth. We want people mirroring what we're saying because we don't like the truth. The truth is often not very pretty. And so we go to people who aren't gonna tell us the truth, they tell us what we wanna hear. So the reason why God sets up the economy of this within uh, the the structure of Jews and Gentiles, but also within the local church, is that you've got people who have been saved for their entire lives, and you've got people who have just trusted Jesus yesterday, and they're getting baptized today, and God says to all of us, your reward is the same, you all get eternal life. Well, Jesus, I've been serving you since I was six. So, now we don't say that, but it manifests itself in really ugly ways within the church. Because you get somebody who's been a part of a church, well, I've been here for 15 years. I've been at this church. My parents helped plant this church. How dare they don't ask my opinion on the color of the carpet? (laughs) No one asked me what music we should sing on Sunday. My mom nursed me right here in the front row. You guys all remember that? I was here. You were there. We remember. I've been doing this forever. I've been, I've been leading worship longer than most of these people have been alive, and nobody asked me what I think about things. Well, the fact that you're bringing that up might be the reason why. There is a heart posture that we have where we're convinced that because we have seniority, just because we've been doing it the longest means we should be referenced or considered in moving forward. And I have no problem for, for, for multi-generational churches because the older generation has a lot to say to the younger generation and the younger generation has a way of kind of kicking the older generation in the pants saying, hey, retirement doesn't look like that. There's still work to do in the kingdom of God. Are you following? But the truth is that when we start saying, well, I've been here and doing this so long, what you're arguing is that I've been doing this for 40 years and just because I've been doing it for 40 years means you should consider me. Well, have you ever considered that you've been doing it wrong for 40 years? So that's one of the reasons why Jesus sets up his economy this way to put an emphasis on God's faithfulness and not our generosity, but he also does it to reveal our hearts because we are convinced that seniority in the church should rule. We are convinced that people who work harder should gain more approval from Jesus. They should gain more attention from the pulpit. People who give more should have a better seat or should be considered more or put on uh, committees or boards or trustees. We are convinced that because we do more or work more, that translates to more status. Our value is tied to credentials and timing and money and education and influence and even geography. You should consider me over this person because I'm closer. I'm not gifted in it, but I've been here closest, longest. And so God sets up his economy this way to reveal to us that when you think like this, all you're doing is superseding God's generosity. 
You're not taking into account the fact that the reason why we're all here is not because we did the things that needed to be done, it's the, it's the actual opposite. None of us did what was required of us, but in his generosity, he saved us anyway. So at what point do you think that the switch is now flipped and because you didn't work for it, but you're here, now you can work for it? That your hard work somehow positions you in a status format ahead of somebody else. This is cancer within the life of a church because what it does is it makes every relationship you have about your ability and your work and it creates jealousy within the kingdom of God and within local churches because you are valuing status over gratitude. We are not a grateful people. We are a selfish people. We are constantly positioning ourselves to argue why preserving our self-interest is the greatest thing that we could do with our resources and our time. So this parable was for the early church, but it's also for us too, because if you spend most of your time leading conversations with, I've done this, or I've accomplished this, it's an indication that you value your work over his work. And it's something that's gotta be turned from. The Bible word for that is repentance. You turn away from that way of thinking. You turn away from that way of talking and that way of living. And you turn to something, and can I just be as honest, is gonna be far greater than anything that you've experienced leading up to that point, making your life about you. And it's hard to express, like I can't put into words the joy and the peace that comes when you finally fully surrender and stop making everything about you. I can't convince you of that because you're convinced that everything is about you. So to tell you that there are greater things other than you, it's like ramming your head into a wall. The only way to resolve that is for the Holy Spirit to break that wall so that you clearly see in ways you haven't before. And that's what I'm praying happens during today's message, that you are confronted with the word of God and that in all of your pride and your stubbornness, you are finally confronted with the reality that the sun does not revolve around you. And when that gets through your mind and you start realizing that the greatest thing you could do with your life is to stop pushing forward your agenda and your status and just elevating Christ above all things, man, there's no stopping you and there's no stopping God working through you. So from that, let's go to verse 17. <clears throat> because the question from this, before we get into verse 17, is all right, if, 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 if I'm leading um, with me all the time and I'm not leading with Christ and I make that switch, then what am I all about? Well, we're all about his work, not our work. We're all about his stuff and not our stuff. So in verse 17, he answers the question, well, what is his work? What is Jesus doing? If we're not about our stuff anymore, we're about his stuff, what is his stuff? Verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Now I want you to picture this because the way that the landscape of, of Israel is positioned, when you come up out of Jericho and you start walking up these hills and you start cresting on these mountains, you get to a point where you can see Jerusalem off in the distance. And Jesus knows what's coming. 
And he pulls his disciples aside, and I imagine them standing on a mountaintop, kind of like desert and covered with shrubbery, and he's pulling his eyes, and he says, look, guys, and I can imagine him pointing off to Jerusalem, and he, he's pointing, he says, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and when we get there, the Son of Man is gonna be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're gonna condemn him to death. And they're gonna deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, but he will be raised again on the third day. He's standing with this guy, he's like, look, this is why we're going to Jerusalem. I'm not getting out of this alive. When we go up there, within a week, I'm gonna be arrested, beaten, hung on a cross, killed. But you gotta remember, that's not the end of the story. Three days later, I'm coming back to life and I'm gonna conquer death. And they're probably just like, mm, I'm not following. So when you say you're gonna die, when you say they're gonna arrest you and beat you, what do you mean? When you say you're gonna come back to life, the idea that they're not getting this means that there's a condition of their heart that's keeping them from this. There's a hardness that's blinding them. Jesus is pouring his soul out to these guys. Look, this is my work. This is why I came. We're going up to do the thing. And they're like, mm, I wonder if Jesus likes me more than James. I wonder if we were in a foot race, if I could beat Peter. That's what they're thinking about. And Jesus is like, no, no, guys, this is what's important. And today, Jesus is saying through my teaching, guys, this is what's important. And we're sitting here thinking, I wonder if I'm gonna get enough of Butch's barbecue. I wonder how Marshall's gonna fit in that baptism tank. Because it's pretty small. No, 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 Jesus is like, no guys, this is what's important. I'm like, yeah, you sure? Because there's some things down here that seem pretty important. It's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what's important. My work is important. What is his, his work? His work is reconciling the world back unto God through servant leadership. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm going to do a work that is gonna destroy any argument that you have about what you've accomplished. When I'm done doing this, it will not matter what medals or trophies you have because what I'm going to do on your behalf will overshadow all of that. This re-education, I need you guys to understand as we're going through this journey, is about completely uprooting your entire understanding of status and positioning yourself better and ahead of other people in the world. We have nothing to bring that changes our status. Our status is completely determined off of what Jesus has done, not what you have done. That's what this conversation is about. It's about Jesus. In simple terms, he's essentially saying that I want you to think differently about what is important. I want you to stop thinking that this stuff is important and I want you to start thinking about what I say is important. Now what was the disciples' response? What did they do in response to that? Of Jesus saying, guys, we're going up and we're doing the thing and I'm gonna raise from the dead and this is what's important. What was their response? Let's read it, verse 20 through 28. It says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say 
that these two sons of mine are gonna sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you, and at this point in the, uh, in the other gospels, we see that the conversation is kind of shifted and he's actually having the conversation not with the, the mom, but now with James and John. He, said, and he looks at him and says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And the boys, they looked at him and said, yeah, we're able. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I can drink, I'm good. I'm t- I'll drink any cup you give me. And he says, look, you're gonna drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not for me to grant but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, ooh, they were indignant at the two brothers. And Jesus called them to him and said, look, guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The leadership style of the world is that when you get in a position of power, you constantly remind people who's in charge. That's why your name's on the door, so that every time someone walks by, they're reminded that you have this position and they don't. They lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what was their response to Jesus saying the most important thing is what I'm going to do? One of the moms of the group, and then the boys jumped in with an argument about why they thought that their position and status should be seated at the left and the right hand of Jesus. Now what they're asking is wrapped up in Jewish tradition, and the idea is that being, the, being seated at the right hand and the left hand of the king was a demonstration of power and honor and status. I'm sitting at the right and left hand of the king because we are most important. We are his favorites. So her request is essentially saying, I want my boys to be in a position of status farther and and more ahead than the rest of the disciples. And her question revealed that her heart was in the wrong place and the disciples' heart was in the wrong place and it's why this entire thing of re-education needed to take place in the first place because these guys have been following Jesus for three years and they're still more concerned with where their position is in relation to the other 12 than what Jesus is about to suffer when he goes to Jerusalem. Well, they didn't know. Yes, they did. He told them three times, I'm going to die. So when you say die, they knew, but they didn't want to hear because they were too preoccupied with their desire to be seen as better than the rest. So this question, it was about status, but the way Jesus responds to it, he doesn't answer it because the question seems to be wrapped up in their misunderstanding that when he goes up to Jerusalem, well, maybe he's gonna die, but probably he's not gonna die because really he's gonna take on Rome and he's gonna take his rightful seat and he's gonna be our king and Israel's gonna have a great king again like we did in the time of David. And when he sits on that throne, I want my boys to be sitting on your right and your left hand. And when he responds, he doesn't respond with them right here. He responds with the cross in mind. 
What he's saying is that you don't know what you're asking. When she says, can they sit on the left and the right? And he says, I can't tell you that's been prepared by my father. It's not for me to say. He's not talking about sitting on the left and the right of the throne of heaven or on earth. He's saying, you're not fit to sit on the left or the right of me when I'm on the cross. That's been prepared by my father before I even get there. Are you even ready? Can you even drink the cup of suffering that I am going to drink hanging on that cross? Well, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Yes, James in Acts 12 is going to be killed by Herod, so he is going to drink that cup. John is gonna be uh, exiled to the island of Patmos where he writes Revelation and he essentially is ostracized and he in a way drinks of that cup, the only disciple who wasn't martyred but um, in all intents and purposes he's completely eliminated from culture. He's forced to live on an island by himself. Some of you that sounds like a vacation and a dream. Wow, how do I get that to live alone for the rest of my life? But some of you are like, wow, six hours without my phone and I am dying. So Jesus says, look, both of you are going to taste this in a way. But then Matthew, using this scripture, pulls our attention to something else. The disciples start getting angry with the brothers because of status. And so while Jesus is telling us some interesting things about the way he's viewing what he's about to do and the way he responds to the mother, he then jumps down uh, from Matthew's story um, to uh, describe to us what his view of leadership should be. Because the guys start getting upset. How dare you send your mom to ask for status in front of Jesus? But Jesus stops the whole argument and says like, I don't want any division among my people. Stop fighting and stop arguing. If any one of you want to be seen as great, I'm not gonna tell you that's a thing you can't chase, but I'm gonna redefine what greatness looks like. Greatness in my kingdom equals servanthood. You wanna be the greatest, get to the back of the line. You wanna be seen as the most valuable, the most important, then get on your knees and wash some feet. Serve those around you. And I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not willing to do. It is something that I'm gonna demonstrate the night I'm going to be arrested because Jesus served his disciples. He served us even to the point of death, becoming a ransom for many. And that was a symbol of God's generosity that was introduced at the beginning of this chapter. So our response to the desire in our heart to want to be the first in line, how do you combat that? How do you stop saying, I want to be seen as the best? You force yourself to get to the back of the line to get low and start serving people. That is the most practical way for you as a human being to combat the desire inside of yourself to be seen as greater or in front of the person. So in your life, when you see this person, you say, I don't have to be the smartest, but I need to be seen as smarter than this person. How do you fix that in your heart? Well, you repent, but then you put some, some, some feet to your repentance and you go and you serve that person that you wanted to be in front of. If there's a desire on your side yourself, man, I just, I don't have to be the funniest or the best preacher. I just gotta be better than that person. Funnier than that person, smarter than that person. I just have to be more, I, have to be, I, gotta, I gotta have more money than this person. How do you combat that? 
you go and you serve that person. There is no greater way to rip the roots of status and the sin of that out of your heart than serving the one you want to be greater than. That's how Jesus did it. So, this was quite a re-education for the disciples. It was challenging for us, sure, but it was also challenging for them. And Matthew knew this, so he ended this chapter with the story as they head up to Jerusalem, they're leaving Jericho. And this story that Matthew includes at the end of this conversation about eliminating status in our life, he puts this story in here that helps kind of drive home the point. We're gonna finish with reading this. Matthew 20, 29. It says, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. And then what did they do? They followed him. So Jesus is walking out of Jericho, and these beggars are crying out. What do beggars typically cry out for? Money. And the disciples know this, and so they're, shh, 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 now's not the time. Look, you don't even know Jesus. He didn't have any money. Like, you're not getting anything today. But they cry out all the more, and they're proclaiming something that they know from the scriptures. You're you're the descendant of David. You're connected to the king. You're supposed, we know who you are. We know you can do things that nobody else can do, so have mercy on us. Please have mercy on us. And when Jesus comes by and he asks them, what do you want? Their their, Their request is, I want to see. I want to see. Why does Matthew put this story at the end of a long section of Scripture, verse 1 through 28, about reassessing status? Because Matthew wants us to have the same thing that these guys had, the ability to truly see that our way of doing things is broken. So in this story, what Matthew is saying, what the Spirit is asking you today is do you see how broken your thinking is? Do you see how blind you are to God's ways? Do you see how badly you need to see? You walked in here today thinking you could see, but the truth is that there are huge corners of your life that you can't see around and that you are blind to. You have massive blind spots in your life about the way you treat people and how you view your position in relation to others who call themselves disciples. And Matthew is saying, through his writing, through the power of the Holy Spirit today, do you see? Do you want to see? Or are you convinced that you already can see? That you've already seen all there is to see? I want this for us. Lord, I wanna see. And I don't don't just wanna see. I want all of you to see. 
And I'm not trying to kind of tiptoe into some rhetorical, emotional, like, like there is a way that as a pastor, I could, I could really just start working up the room on this. That's not my desire. My desire is from the most humble, broken place possible. It's for us, to, for me to plead with you that us as a people, we don't see as clearly as we think we see. And if we continue to live in a way where we are convinced that we are the only church doing it right, that we are the only people who see clearly, that we are the only ones who truly love or truly serve, we are going to divorce ourselves from the larger community of the family of God, and we as a people here specifically will accomplish very little in the kingdom of God because we are structured in a way that we need the entire family of God worldwide. There are brothers and sisters who who live in Tallahassee but don't go here that are your brothers and sisters and our desire should be to see and to want them to see. Because if there's anything that we've learned over the last two years, three years, four years in the life of the church is that we are walking around acting like we know exactly what the lost need and it's not Jesus. It is a modified Sunday morning gathering that is a little more palatable to those who don't like hearing his name. And what is created inside of us is a detachment from what this says we should be believing so that when people do finally show up, they're not really even sure if we believe what this says or what we believe we say we believe. And so the plea today is for us as a people to want to see. Oh, God, let us see. We want to walk with you like these disciples. We want to have our eyes open like they did. We want to forsake our way of thinking. We want to have our complete minds and our values transformed. We want to trade in what we think for what you think. We want to be put to work in your vineyard and not spend our days complaining about how little we got for what we did. We want above everything to have our hearts guarded against jealousy that is breeding and brooding in the life of the church, that puts church families against each other, that puts families within the church against each other, that puts competing people against each other, and all it does is spread disunity and elevates us above Jesus. No one can hear our message because we're too busy talking about things that don't matter. And so what we want above everything else is what Matthew was showing us happened in the lives of these two blind men. We want our eyes open so that we can get up and we can start following you, not following our version of you, but following you. This is what we want, Jesus. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.